This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dr. Alex Hanna. I'm a sociologist and a research scientist on the Ethical AI team in Google Research and a tech worker. Uh, I'm extremely excited today um, that Haymarket has allowed us to bring this great group together um, for this panel, the Fight for the Future, Organizing the Tech Industry. Um, so just a little background on this. Um, we're here because big tech touches every part of our lives from vacuuming up massive amounts of information about our movements and collecting images of our faces to dictating where gig work drivers should go, pushing warehouse workers to fulfill orders. It's pervasive in its reach and pernicious in its effect. But workers, organizers, and scholars are pushing back. We're forming unions and organizing collectives with our colleagues. We're sounding the alarm on the ways that these technologies exacerbate structural racism and debate the rise of global, uh, global fascism, and we're starting to win. Um, in this background, in December 2020, we will fire Dr. Timni Jabru, co-lead, former co-lead of my team, uh, the Ethical AI team, after she refused to accept attempted censorship of a co-authored article questioning the ethics and environmental impact of large-scale AI language models. Um, this termination sparked a new wave of organizing this has been going along on for, for years amongst sex workers who quickly mobilized to defend uh, to meet uh, Dr. Jabru against corp the corporate giants' efforts to silence criticism of a key part of their business model. Um, it's against this background that Google workers announced the formation of a union, the Alphabet's Workers Union, um, which are, and um, and we're going to talk about how this offers important lessons about workers' powers in one of capitalism's most profitable and important sectors. So joining us on this panel today is a fantastic group of folks and friends. Uh, first, Dr. Tanid Jabru, who is a co-founder of Black and AI. She was a staff research scientist and co-lead of the ethical AI team at Google before being terminated. Um, Dr. Charlton. McElwain, uh, who is a vice provost for, for faculty engagement and development at NYU, professor of media, culture, and communication, and founder of the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. Dr. Safia Umoja Noble, an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, in the Department of Information Studies, where she serves as the co-founder and co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. She also holds appointments in the African-American Studies and Gender Studies departments. She's the author of the best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithm bias in commercial uh, search engines, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Adrian Williams, who is a former charter school junior high teacher and Amazon delivery driver turned labor organizer. 
Her ultimate goal is to force the powerful to abide by the same laws as the working class in hopes that equity will lead to freely organizing and advocating for self, for herself, which will create a happier society. And last, not least, Meredith Whitaker, who is a research professor at New York University, co-founder and faculty director of the AI Now Institute at NYU and founder of Google's Open Research Group. Thank you all for coming. I'm so excited to chat with you all today. Uh, so let's just kick it to you, to Neat. To Neat, what the hell happened? <laughs> like, what happened? Like, I know what happened. I felt it very intimately about what happened. Tell us what happened and what this, what this is, what, you know, what's really happening? What happened and then what's really happening? <laughs> well... Let me take a sip of my wine here and uh, just tell you the whole story. <laughs> but um, so to recap, um, we were uh, writing this paper called "On the Dangers of Stochastic Parents," and um, the very funny thing is that I had I was really not planning on writing such a paper. But a lot of people at Google were asking us, you know, um, what are some of the things we should think about. When we work on um, what what they what are called large language models, so this is a type of language technology, and um, I and many people in our team, including you, right, Alex, and a number of other people, were sort of concerned by the hype that was being generated around these language models. Like um, there's examples of how they generate very racist and sexist. Um, text. And that's only part of, you know, we only know that because some people have done some work on uncovering those, but there is a lot of other issues. So, um, so when people kept on like emailing me, I literally, uh, <laughs> messaged Emily Bender and I was like, Hey, you know, people keep on asking me about this and I keep on pointing onto your tweets or whatever. Um, have you written a paper about this or is there like, a paper that you can point me to that I can point other people to. Also, if you're planning on writing such a paper, I would, you know, it'd be very useful for me. I would be a, the first consumer of such a paper. And then she was like, you know what? No, but can we, maybe we should write a paper together. So then us and a number of people in our team wrote this paper and we sent it out for feedback and all of that. And literally a day before we all go out on vacation, there is a random meeting on my calendar from my manager's manager uh, without, and it would, this was Meg's, Meg Mitchell, my, my colleague, my former colleague, let's say, this was her birthday. So she was actually taking the day off, trying to like relax. So I see this thing on my calendar and I'm like, oh, why do we have to meet? Um, so I, I know I'm meandering, but I have to tell you guys the story. So like, it's like 2 p.m., right? And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, okay, why do we have this meeting for 4.30 on my calendar? Um, Meg Mitchell is, um, actually, she can't make it. So should we, can we make it tomorrow? Like, why does it have to be now? Nobody's answering me. And then someone knocks on my door and I open the door and I'm served. Uh, somebody comes and said, okay, you've been served. I'm like, what? So they give me a subpoena for, I haven't told you, right, and Meredith, for there's like a case that involves um, where where they're citing um, our paper gender shades. And so I have a subpoena for this and I'm like, are these two things related? Um, turns out they're not. But, and so I go to this meeting, Megan, who is my manager's manager says, you know, um, a bunch of people, you know, think that this paper should be, uh, 
retracted, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, why are they saying it now? Why not before we had all this time for a conversation? And she's like, yeah, I know, I know, you know, that's fair. That's fair. I'll go back and I'll fight it and I'll tell them, you know, acting. Basically, she was acting like she's on our side and this was not coming from her. So then I was really upset about this whole thing. I, li- I literally I started crying in the meeting. And then the next and then the next day, I'm just like trying to find out more information. Right. Like if we retract this paper, um, what's going to happen to it afterwards? You know, uh, what are you planning on doing? Are you planning on just squashing the ideas? Do you have any suggestions for revisions? Um, what will happen? So we keep on going back and forth. Um, and there's really no engagement whatsoever with what I'm saying. And Alex even sends an email saying, you know, she's very concerned about this because what does it mean for the future of the ethical AI team? What does it mean for the new people we just brought in? The first social scientist, new research scientist in our team, um, poor Mark, you know, who this was his first paper as a, at Google, he was, he was new, what does it mean? So again, no engagement whatsoever. But then I, we started sort of seeing emails that sounded like lawyer speaky type. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on. But finally, I got super frustrated and I was like, look, I'm supposed to be on vacation. I was already really stressed out. I haven't even been, you know, and now you started this whole thing right before I went on vacation. So I said, look, I'm not yet ready to retract my name off of this paper. Um, the, the deadline to finalize, you know, uh, author names is end of January. So what I want, what I want to know is a few things. First of all, how did this retraction happen? Like who came up with this process? Why? And is this, is this a regular process? What are we going to do? Now, secondly, you guys need to have a number of meetings with the ethical AI team about process in general, because how is, how is this team supposed to do any research? And thirdly, I need to know what parameters of research can be done at Google and who can re- you know tell me to retract my paper by when, et cetera. Then I sent that email to Brain Women and Allies talking about, you know, their DI OKRs and such, because the reason being um, a number of two people from that email list were <laughs> poor women were writing yet another doc because we write we've written so many documents about the issues. <laughs> and they were like, hey, you know, we were we were we were going by hand and trying to see all the new people who were hired. And it doesn't seem like they hired, you know, they hired it seems like they only hired like you know, 13 or 14% women, whatever. And they write all these docs. And I'm like, look, you know, if there's no accountability for any of these things that are happening, you can, you know, it's not going to make a difference. So even in that doc, I went on and I commented and I said, you should push for accountability. So I wrote all of that to the Brain Women and Allies group. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have an electronics free day. I'm done. I need, my, I need to have a day just of peace. <laughs> so Wednesday, um, I'm chatting with one of our team members, poor, poor girl, Negar, and she's like randomly telling me about this cool person. I love their research. Maybe at some point, you know, um, we can have them in our team, blah, blah, blah. And then in the middle of that, she's like freaking out. And she's like, oh, my God, did you resign? Did you did you submit your resignation? I just got a message. I just got an email from Megan. So then I messaged Alex. I'm like, did you get this email? She's like, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sure other people have, too. And so that's how I found out that I am, um, I'm, 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 I'm apparently I resigned. And what they point to is, um, the, an email I wrote to the brain women and allies team and something about being a manager or whatever. And I don't even think they, I, I just, what I feel is that they just couldn't 
wait to get rid of me. And they thought they found an in somehow. And they were just like, let's just like get her out. And, um, I think this paper was, um, sort of like a catalyst. Maybe they were irritated that I just wasn't like, okay, fine. And, and I said, uh, stop, but I don't think, I mean, I think they had been waiting for a reason for a while, right? Like it wasn't like, you know, it was like they were thrilled for me to be a manager, for instance. And it was and it was very clear for me why my manager, Sammy, was not involved, because he was um, constantly defending me and our team in general and constantly sort of pushing back whatever narrative they were telling him about, you know, me, for instance, he wanted me to be a manager. And then the HR people were concerned, like about me being a manager and he had to defend me, et cetera. So it made it made sense, right, that they would sideline him and kind of do this really quickly when he couldn't give input because he was very horrified by the whole thing that the whole thing about the paper, the whole thing about, you know, how they were going about this. So that's what happened in a nutshell, just that little, that one event that, I mean, not little, but just that one culmination of many events. Um, and I think the reaper, there are many things, you know, I think that like, well, yeah, I, I, there's a lot I can say, but that's, that's <laughs> sort of what happened in, um, in my situation. And I've been, I'm just, I, I want to take this moment to say that it has been incredibly amazing to see everyone's support, including everybody on, on, on this call. I mean, like, I, I mean, I knew I had support, but I didn't know I had this much support. And that has been amazing to see because the night they fired me, I, I couldn't fall asleep. I mean, I didn't sleep the whole night because I was sort of wondering what are they going to do? Because, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that they pushed me out. Or they made me miserable enough to go leave or whatever. But the way they did it uh, really sort of freaked me out. But seeing the outpouring of support was was really heartening. And um, and if we have to direct our you know that energy right now, I would direct it to making sure that the team, the ethically I team, is safe because you know it's there's a lot of people first of all who who don't have the the safety nets that you know some people might have right like there's like, you know people work in big tech even even if you're not a first of all if you're a contract worker we already know that you have none of the benefits and none of the other kind of privileges that people who full-time employees have but even full-time employees there's all of these things that they dangle right like your visa if you're a person you know if you're an immigrant and you're working based on visa and that's that's really scary right um and there's a number of other things so there are a lot of people putting their necks out there trying to show solidarity who are not really in safe places right now so i kind of want to make sure that we can ensure at least that they have some safety thank you so much to me i mean i know like having to relive this over and over and talk about this and talk about this and i mean the thing i want to highlight about the things you said is that you know your email that you sent was saying you know like when, you know, we, this kind of work, you know, this kind of, this kind of gaslighting that I'm getting here, this happens consistently to me, um, uh, to other black women in the organization, other black folks in the organization, other people of color in the org, um, like, and this is supposed to be a list for, uh, 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 women and allies where it's supposed to be like, okay, this is sort of like a safe space. And so there's, and then, and then they turn around and saying, okay, uh, you're out of line because of this email. So, I mean, so I want to, I want to push on this. I don't want to push on this, this, this thing about precarity and contract workers and organizing. And so I want to, 
I'm going to turn it to Adrian because I want to hear from you. And I want to hear about your experience and your work uh, as an organizer and someone that's worked uh, uh, for uh, the big tech, a big tech company on the, on the contract work side. Um, yeah, so mine is a little different just because I didn't actually work as a tech worker. I was actually a driver, but I mean, you still, you notice the problems and because you're a lower rung worker, you really don't get any recognition when you bring those problems up. It's kind of like, we don't care about you and you can be replaced tomorrow. So you either deal with it or you go find another job. And, um, you know, it's really frustrating. I think for me, because I started noticing the problems before the pandemic of, you know, like the wage theft of, Hey, we have this stand up meeting and it's, 30 minutes a day before your route and it's unpaid. Well, that doesn't seem like a lot. And so most people kind of let that go. But if you do the math and I'm a math person, that's like, okay, that's $10, $10 a day. That's five days a week. That's 50 bucks a week. That comes out to be about 24 to $2,600 a year. Now, I don't think Jeff Bezos needs my $2,600 a year, but as a single parent, I need that. You know, and so those little things that really add up and that's just one of the problems. You know, I've I've met workers in Oklahoma that said that they're being forced to get they get charged to use their PTO. So they have earned paid time off. And then when they go to use it, they get charged a fee. Um, it it it's so it's just so much. But then I've also, on the other hand, talked to Amazon tech workers who get paid really well and get abused in other ways where they get on the, they're like on call for a week and they're on call can mean that they got get called 170 times within that week. So you have somebody who makes a really good living and they're a new mom and Amazon is waking them up more than their brand new infant. Now, just on a humanity level, how do I be a good mom to my new baby? Make sure that I'm taking care of my child, make sure I'm taking care of my own, you know, needs and my humanity. And yet make sure I don't lose my job in the process because this fool is calling me 170 times in one week. And it is at any time of day or night. And from what I've heard, you can't go to a anniversary. You can't go to a birthday party. You can't go to a movie. You can't do anything within that week. And then they justify by saying, well, but we make a really good living. So I don't want to complain. But you have the right to your own time. And I feel like that's the argument that's used against single people. That's like, well, I'm single, so why should I have to care if you have a kid? That's your, your, you know, that was your problem. You decided to have a kid, so I shouldn't have to care if you have, you know, single parent needs. Well, what if you don't have kids, but you have a sick parent? You know, so we have to start looking at each other when we talk about these tech companies in terms of just like, you are working these 40 hours that we collectively have said, that's what we're going to have. And then everything outside of that, should be your own time. And I don't care how much money you make, you're justified to your own time. Um, in terms of organizing, I think what was really difficult is that there's kind of this attitude, even amongst the working class, that it's like, well, this is just where we are. And who am I to ask for more? Who am I to fight for more? And I'm exhausted. You know, that driver job is no joke. They talk about, you know, everybody signs that thing where it's like, can you lift 50 pounds? But I've carried a barbecue onto somebody's porch. So that 50 pounds is a joke. I mean, I know for a fact that I've carried things that were 80, 90 pounds and it's a great workout, but 
I deserve to get paid enough to pay my rent when I'm carrying barbecues onto your porch and you're getting it in two days. You know what I mean? Um, and it was really hard to get the rest of the people that work there to get on that same bandwagon. And I can understand why, you know, some of them are kind of like, Hey, I can make ends meet and it's hard to live in the Bay area. So I'm not willing to ruffle any feathers because I don't know if I can find the same rent somewhere else. Or, you know, I really need this job and I have a record and no one else will hire me. Amazon's good for hiring felons because they know you can't go anywhere. Who else is going to hire you? So they will use you and abuse you and toss you out because they know you're afraid because you can't go anywhere else. And so the idea of organizing when the ones that are brave and are like, I don't even want to say brave because there are some that are brave that just can't organize. They can't do it. It's not that they don't want to, they just can't. But the ones that have stood up to say, okay, I'm going to organize, they get targeted. Amazon, we've let them as a country get so rich that they can hire their own CIA that they call intelligence analysts. They're in the warehouses. They have been known to detain and interrogate employees just like the FBI or the CIA, having them in rooms for hours at a time. That's illegal. But where are you going to go when you're poor and you can't afford a lawyer? So they do these tactics that just terrorize communities. And there's absolutely nowhere you can go. And it's so absurd that when you try to tell people, people are like, that's illegal. That didn't happen. As if Amazon gives a crap about what's illegal. So the organizing is, it's a hard thing. I have my eye on Alabama because they're right now trying to do a vote. But what I know is that there are unions in Europe who have been trying to negotiate for years, seven, eight years, and Amazon will just stall them out and refuse. So my thought is what we need are the unions now, our ILWUs, our port workers, our people who say they believe in unions to put their money where their mouth is and stop unloading these ships. And that's really where it's at for me. They keep calling for general strikes and want working class folks with no safety net to jump on the streets and go protest. I don't have a safety net, but y'all do. So stop unloading these ships until Amazon does better. That's where I'm at with it. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we need to see some of that solidarity. I mean, we saw this recently, the Hunter's Point strike. Um, Teamsters turning the, the the trains around, going back to Ohio. Um, that solidarity is amazing. We need some of that solidarity with Amazon drivers. I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it to Sophia. I want you to speak about this, especially about um, the concentration of power and capital in these tech companies. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex. And it's just an honor to be here with all of you. I'm um, just in awe of the fact when I look at this screen and I see women and people of color always, always at the forefront of pushing, of recognizing, of seeing, of naming our exploitation of our communities and of ourselves. And I want to remind everyone who's watching that the reason we know about these crises um, is because um, of the way in which scholars of color, women, LGBTQ um, scholars and journalists and workers have put their careers, their reputations, and quite frankly, in some cases, their lives on the line trying to push back on big tech. So um, it's not lost on me that um, 
that we gather here to have this very, very serious conversation. And I know that it's also consequential um, for all of us in different ways. So let me just say that one of the things that's um, important to us that that I think many of us have been studying and thinking about as I hear the stories um, to meet of your work and how it's so powerfully linked, Adrian, to your experience is that we're talking about companies that are in um, in the case of Google and Amazon, the 10 most um, powerful companies on planet Earth, in the top 10, in the sector that has more market capitalization and concentrated wealth than any other sector on planet Earth. So this is not quite the same, let's say, as um, other moments in history where we see the tech sector and big tech broadly participating and in creating some of the most extractive business practices we've ever seen. And I think it's really important for us to remember that um, there have been other um, moments of crisis in human history where that kind of exploitation has been um, resisted and appended. So I feel energized as we have this conversation that we remember and we kind of um, recall, for example, the abolitionists who fought so powerfully against the transatlantic slave trade and the institution of slavery, when that too was a very profoundly normalized industry, a normalized way of living um, where people expected the exploited labor of Black people and Indigenous people to just uh, exist in perpetuity, right? So, um, you know, it has been the handful of resistors and abolitionists who pushed back um, to change those institutions. And I just want to remind us, because I think of all of us on this call and all of our colleagues and friends and coworkers as being part of that lineage and that tradition. You know, in the case of we're talking about Amazon and Google, um, you know, I sit here from Los Angeles having this conversation and I'm thinking about um, the way in which um, every kind of public democratic institutional counterweight to big tech has been so powerfully undermined. So the ways in which we would think, for example, about what education, K through 12, or higher education, or public libraries, public media, public health organizations could do to support and be the safety net, Adrian, that you talked about, right, to allow us public space, indeed, to organize and to think and to um, strategize. Uh, um, many of these spaces are uh, continually being undermined, eroded, made fragile. And of course, this is in direct relationship to um, Silicon Valley, and Silicon Beach, right, where close to where I live, um, companies like Google and Amazon who don't pay taxes, for example, which incredibly weakens our ability to um, organize ourselves and think about social safety nets. Um, they offshore their profits and only are willing to bring those profits back into the economy um, if they can pay them directly to shareholders, right, without penalties. So, you know, you think about the way in which, um, you know, we watched on January 6th um, white nationalist uprisings in Washington, D.C., and a whole effort to um, 
collapsed democracy. There's no way around talking about what kind of a a fascist uprising, a white nationalist uprising is. And it's been emboldened by the very companies, in fact, that we're talking about today. They've, They've laid the infrastructure for the organizing of white supremacy, for the organizing of kind of anti-union, anti-worker organizations, for the intimidation of democratically elected officials, um, for the threats. Um, So, you know, it isn't as if the these companies that we're talking about when we talk about their concentrated power that they're that they're just exploiting the vulnerable that we're taught that we're talking about today they're also empowering at the same time people who would um uh, quite frankly otherwise see immigrants um sent out of the united states um people fired um you know, I mean, it's not lost to me here. Charlton and I, we do work around critical race and digital studies, um, you know, and um, these companies have empowered um, to the executive branch people who would make our work illegal through, by executive order. I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount at stake. And, and of course, um, what our work does is allows us to name powerfully these kinds of processes that we see unfolding. And the kind of research that we do is, you know, in solidarity with trying to um, make legible these harms. So I guess I'll, I'll just uh, maybe kind of leave my opening remarks there and say that, um, you know, the kind of precarity to meet that you and Adrian, Adrian, that you two are talking about, you know, it's different across class lines. But if there were ever a moment for us to understand that um, the beta testing of exploitation of the most vulnerable workers and people in our world is happening right before our eyes. And if we don't think that that those practices are coming from middle class people, um, we're foolish, that's, there's just no way around it. The kinds of algorithmic harm, the kinds of um, um, labor um, um, threats are happening across all sectors, um, across all types of, of laborers and workers. And I think this is a really important moment for us to keep doing research and keep doing um, talks and making visible um, what these harms are and, and strengthening these um, lines of connection. Um, and so, uh, you know, I hope to think that my work is in service of that too. Thank you so much, Sophia. And yes, I would completely agree. Your work has been so critical in highlighting these connections. Um, I want to pass it to Charlton now, um, who I know has done so much work in this area and, uh, to continue that lineage. So yeah, we go with you. Indeed, thank you, and um, thank you to to all the uh, my my co panelists here. And I can't think of a more necessary and more consequential conversation uh, to be having at this particular moment than the one we're having uh, now. And as Sophia mentioned, so many uh, implications. And uh, before I say much more, I want to uh, you know say extra thanks to Tim Nate, to uh, Adrian, to Alex, and. Uh, for for your um, bravery, I think we all recognize that uh, in issues or at times like this, there are moments um, where you could have responded very differently. You could have uh, sort of crawled uh, up in a uh, a room and and necessarily so and been uh, very much within 
uh, sort of reason and expectation to do so. But um, the energy, the excitement, um, the possibilities that come from seeing you modeling that bravery and taking your experience and putting it out for the world to see and using it as a way to uh, galvanize and push for uh, justice in, in this area. Um, it is, uh, it's remarkable. And so I want to start with that. And I, you know, it, it's, I spent the last few years um, really taking a look through history, um, much as Sophia mentioned, and thinking about the relationship of technology to Black people and other uh, underrepresented uh, groups across the world and, and in this country. And uh, so I remember that moment when I started to see, as everyone else, unfold on Twitter uh, what was happening with, uh, with Tim Nade and what uh, has happened uh, since. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you, you know, your, your heart beats and your blood boils and there is the anger. Um, and then when things settle, at least for me, there's the realization of, shit, here, this, here, here we go again, right? Um, that... Uh, as unfortunate as this particular moment is, and as unfortunate as it is to know and have a connection with an individual person for whom this is uh, playing out and playing out in these uh, devastating ways, uh, that this is the history of our country, our world with respect to technology and its relationship to uh, people generally, uh, regardless uh, of, of race and uh, uh, and other things that uh, are different uh, about us, but particularly for and on uh, communities of color. So at this moment, and when that happened, and even thinking about preparing for uh, this conversation today, there, my mind went back to a number of those historical figures and words that they uh, called into uh, being that I think um, help describe what the stakes are for us today, help us diagnose what the problems uh, are and what uh, persist. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes just uh, taking you through uh, a couple of those and really leading up to a final point that I want to make in terms of introduction. Um, given the focus around organizing and labor movements, I couldn't help but go back to uh, labor leader, civil rights activist, A. Philip Randolph, one-time head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, who throughout the 50s and 60s was very concerned about uh, Black people's relationship to technology, particularly in the scope of uh, labor and work and access to opportunity. Um, and he said a couple of things that has always uh, stuck with me as a guide for how we should be thinking about the role of technology and what it should play and how it should play in our lives. And uh, on the one hand, he said, you cannot destroy the machine. You cannot stifle the invention of various geniuses in the world. He said, technology is the collective creation of the people. And as such, he believed that, again, quote, the people should share in the fruits of technology. And so I think it's important to think about uh, what we should demand of uh, these tech companies and so forth, which is that technology is supposed to be something that works for all of us, right? Um, and I think what we see and what we have seen uh, persist throughout history is something very different. It is uh, an industry, uh, a private industry that only sees people of color in particular as valuable 
in as much as we are able to be a, a mass technical labor force able to produce the kind of wealth uh, needed to keep a very few in positions of economic uh, and social power. Um, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, but one of those, I think, is another current that persistently runs through tech industry uh, work historically and certainly today, and that is a persistent anti-Blackness that pervades both the tech industry as much as it does our society and, in many respects, uh, the world. And so here I think back to another statement from a, a figure, uh, civil rights movement, labor organizing, politician, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., uh, who made this remark in a in a speech, and I always come back to this speech, and I can't think of any more appropriate words to describe precisely what we've seen in uh, the case uh, of what's going on at, at Google right now, and with Tim Neat and with uh, Alex, the rest of the team, uh, and others. He said, I shall not quote statistics to do so would be a waste of your time and that of my staff. We know that the Afro-American is the last hired, first fired. We know that he pays a tax on being black, which makes him the lowest wage earner in this nation. We know that he is quarantined, regardless of ability and education, so that his highest achievement can be that the attainment of only creature comforts. We know that he composes the largest number of unemployed in this nation, and we know that the new era of automation does not include him. And when I see what's going on and what has been unfolding, that is what most powerfully comes back to me is an industry who in very real, explicit, demonstrative ways was not made for us, was not made with us in mind or with our best interest at heart. Um, and quickly, because I'm taking up too much uh, time, I'm going to move on to just a third uh, thought, which is to say that throughout all of these examples, I think that what it shows and what it is both fair and accurate to say is that our technology industry today, as it has been throughout its history, is one that is represented by a system of tokenism rather than true diversity or equity or inclusion. We see this on the one hand uh, by the mere fact that when we look at the representation of people of color in the tech industry, uh, that, that is about the same today as it was in 1968, the government uh, first mandated uh, that corporations uh, make known uh, the demographics of their work workforce. Okay. okay. Um, but certainly representation is only one part of that question. I think what is at stake in our discussion here about technology, about labor, about representation is really one of power. And while representation is often a step towards power, representation, of course, is not on its own um, uh, exemplify power in and of itself. Um, and I think we all certainly, uh, many of us on this uh, call here today, recognize that true power lies in ownership, true power lies in influence, true power lies in the exercise of one's prerogatives to know that uh, they will have a bearing on corporate decisions that get made. True power lies in the ability to say, stop, wait, pause, or simply no. And I think when we look out on uh, the tech industry terrain uh, today, what we're seeing is 
that that level of power is simply not there. And that is certainly what we need to be uh, pushing for. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlton. That is just calling it <laughs> what it is. It's the system of tokenization and replacing representation with actual power. Uh, I'm going to turn it now to Meredith to close off um, the opening remarks. If you have questions for anybody, pop them in the chat um, and we can take them uh, uh, in the second part. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Haymarket. Thank you, everyone on this call. I, I got to say, this is profoundly fortifying to see and hear from you. Um, you know, some of you have been my colleagues. Some of you have been like the touchstones I turned to when I needed to deepen my analysis. And, you know, knowing that there are people committed to thinking about this means a lot. Um, and especially Adrian, Timney, and Alex, just solidarity with what all of you are doing. Um, so I will start this, you know, I was trying to describe to a friend in a kind of tearful conversation what Tim Neat's firing um, meant and why it was so affected for, you know, why I was so affected by it. Um, and beyond the fact that Tim Neat is a, you know, is a is a force for good and a friend and just a, a you know, a powerful researcher. Um, and, you know, I sort of lit on the analogy that, you know, Google firing Tim Neat, especially in the way that it did, was analogous to COVID in the U.S. insofar as it sort of laid bare all of the contradictions in the tech industry all at once. All of the contradictions, you know, the way that COVID laid bare sort of the contradictions of U.S. racial capitalism. And you immediately saw the ingrained anti-Blackness and racism, the fact that tech doesn't care about science or research unless it is in service of capital and in service of, you know, in, in its self-interest. So it's either PR or it's, you know, it's producing products that are, um, that are profitable. Um, and that, you know, the tech industry had enough power and Google in particular had enough power at this point that it didn't quite care as much about PR as it used to. And this, this, you know, it was chilling. Um, so I'm going to sort of sit with that. I think this is a real high stakes moment. I think this is an inflection point, both in the tech worker movement and in the willingness for these corporations to take the mask off and say like, no, we are bigger than nations. We are more powerful than nations and we are going to start acting that way. So, you know, I think this is, this is a serious conversation we're having right now. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to offer to this conversation to put this in the context of AI and the sort of history that I have looked at and also lived through, right? And it's that the current rise of artificial intelligence or AI, which you know Tim Neat and and Safia and Alex and and a number of folks on this call research, um, you know, it was not the product of scientific innovation. There wasn't a breakthrough where some dude in a lab suddenly understood how to make more conscious, more intelligent machines. It was the product of a significant concentration of computational infrastructure, a significant concentration of data that was you know, part of the advertising ad tech industry that grew the commercialization of the formerly public internet into you know, these giant centers of capital and the concentration of you know, the ability of, of capital and resources, which allowed these companies to hire kind of rare and highly trained you know, technicians who could build these models. 
but what artificial intelligence did and the mythology that was spun around it, right? We're using the word intelligence even. This is already a little bit far beyond what we should be talking about when we talk about these technologies of assessment and prediction that are you know, drawing on statistical and other methods. What it allowed these companies to do was justify their incursion into every other space of life. So they were intelligent machines for, you know, helping with education, for online proctoring, for deciding who gets bail, for deciding who stays in a cage, for deciding, you know, who gets health care and who doesn't get health care, for deciding, you know, the transportation grids in major city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I could, you know, I could go on for probably two hours with examples like this, as could everyone on the call. But, you know, it's harder to find a place where you aren't seeing the incursions of these technologies than where you are. And this means that power over our social institutions, our lives, our you know, commerce, you name it, is now in one sense or another in the hands of an extraordinarily small number of elite, right? Um, whose you know, interests aren't really governed by the democratic processes we usually think of um, and who are really, I think, sort of the, you know, th these are the winners of this type of, of, of you know, techno-racial capitalism. Um, and they are sort of selling these systems to governments, to institutions, to businesses um, who are kind of repurposing them for things like worker control, drone targeting, you know, uh, you know surveilling protesters or you know, whatever else the marketing says that is for good, right? Um, but I think it's it's important to recognize that these are these are tools of capital and social control and that they don't have to work as advertised to actually work as intended. They produce profit, they expand tech into new markets, they do all of this stuff. And you know, if it's if it's biased or if it's broken or if whoa, 40,000 people didn't get their uninsured unemployment insurance benefits. You know, those aren't actually the promises that these companies are making in many cases. You know, what they are offering is a way to obfuscate responsibility and produce sort of efficiencies for capital and governance. So, um, you know, and of course they are racist. Of course they are biased. Of course they work to reinforce the, you know, racialized inequalities that have, you know, that that are the, you know, the 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 core of the founding of, of the U.S. and, you know, and capitalism more generally. Um so I'm going to stop there because I think like when I, 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 or I'm going to stop that part and then sort of tell a little bit about like my story and how I went from being a kind of professional critic in the heart of the tech company to being um, a labor organizer and sort of conjoining those things. Um, and it was, it was partly this analysis as like, I continued to ask questions about like, why is everyone hyped about AI and partly, um, you know, uh, my position within the company that led me to organizing after trying a lot of other things. Um, but it was at the point where I learned that Google was partnering with the Department of Defense to build AI software for drone targeting and surveillance that I, you know, I realized like, yeah, I have created extremely good arguments. I have good critique. I am heard. I am celebrated, right? Like Google seems to love my sort of, you know, it, you know, kind of court jester dissent, right? But I realized, you know, my place at the table was, you know, ornamental. It was, you know, it was there so Google could point to me and say like, look, no, we take all views into account, right? But when the power came down to it, that door was closed to me and I had no influence over the actual decisions. And that moment of contradiction where I was like, you are participating in an illegal drone war that is killing, you know, primarily poor and brown people over there that is now being sort of brought into the interior to surveil protests, et cetera. Um, like, what am I doing, <laughs> right? 
like there's there is no way there is any you know there's any justification for this other than sort of profit and the imprecation of, of capital with the U.S. military. Um, so this was the point at which I started you know, along with a number of colleges, sort of, you know, experimental labor organizing that built on a tradition that has existed at Google in one form or another for, for a while. Um, and I think it was also through this process that the, the deep connections between the inequities within the tech workplace, you know, the fact that there were weeks where the only black woman I saw was cleaning staff who was on a precarious contract, and the fact that you know, the logic encoded in these systems were re was reinforcing that inequity, right? We have drone targeting, we have, you know, we have systems for worker timing and control, we have all of this, that that, you know, became more than sort of an intellectual truth and actually started to be kind of a lived reality. And I think that, you know, that is the focus of this organizing um, and where, you know, where why I'm so happy to see this new generation of leaders sort of take it so much further than it was going and recognize that it needs to be militant, that it needs to take a broad view of who a tech worker is, because this power is infiltrating so many spaces and so many workplaces, um, that it has to be led by movements on the ground that are informed primarily by those who are oppressed by these technologies, right, which is not going to happen in the boardrooms of elite elite tech companies, um, and that it has to vie for not only sort of bread and butter issues, but for control over tech infrastructures. So fighting not to make Google woke, but for the ability to dismantle and transform Google's infrastructures and ultimately to ensure justice, whatever that means for technology. So I'll end it there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meredith. Powerful, amazing important analysis. Um, we have a lot of questions in the chat, so I'm going to, I'm going to oppose one. Uh, Maria has a question for Adrian. Uh, what strategies do you have to convince more privileged workers to join in demanding better conditions? Um, honestly, I've seen more of the privileged workers, more of like the AWS employees and the tech workers striking and taking more of a stand than I've seen the actual, um, you know, warehouse workers and drivers. And I, I don't think that that's a fault of anybody. I think that, you know, the AWS tech workers are in a really special position because, you know, they have a specialized set of skills where mm -hmm. Amazon can fire them and they can go to Google, they can go to Facebook, they can go somewhere and they can get swooped back up. The way in which the warehouse workers and the drivers have been kind of divided and conquered across the country has made it to where we don't even really get along with each other. Just the just the flat way in which they do the rate of pay, so it's like between $15 and $19 an hour across the country, means that you have people in the Midwest who feel like, what the hell are y'all complaining about on the coast? We get paid well. And so it's like we're bickering amongst each other when they don't realize that $19 an hour don't pay the rent, boo, not in California, not in the Bay. But it seems like we're greedy when $700 a month can pay your rent in Oklahoma. And so, you know, it really has been more of the affluent workers that I feel who have taken the reins and been way more vocal. Now, there are pockets and it's growing, but if we really want our warehouse workers and our drivers to really take a stand, then we have to show them that we have their back. So if they get fired, here's some money for you. 
because we're in a pandemic and people are sick and they're terrified and they're not going to starve their children out so that other people can get paid because that's always what happens. We fall on the sword. We become the sheep for everybody else to get paid 10 years later. And people are tired of that. And so I don't, I'm sorry, Maria, I don't really have an answer for you for that because, you know, I haven't found that the affluent Amazon workers haven't been doing their part. I've been working side by side with a lot of them and they've been putting their jobs on the line. A few of them have lost their jobs. Um, I feel like the ones that are not willing to step up are the ones that have so much to lose and I can't blame them. Thank you so much. Um, we have a question from, um, from Miriam. I'd love to hear panelists' suggestions for alternative models we can turn to to help reclaim power from big tech. I know of worker-owned co-ops, but I'd love to hear more about other alternatives. I would turn into everybody else other than me who knows a lot more about this, so <laughs> don't be shy. Well, I'll jump in and say that, you know, one of the things that we argue for at the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry is um, strengthening democratic institutions, because those are institutions that, as flawed as they may be, have um, some type of public governance models. You know, part of the challenge that we're seeing, especially right now, as we come off the heels of the election and the deplatforming of people like um, Donald Trump, is that um, the tech sector is really oriented, uh, certainly people in the United States, to thinking that their domains are the public good, are the public square, are the public resources, right? They apply these um, models and ideas about um, First Amendment and free speech into these private corporations, again, g getting disoriented about what public goods are and what private corporations are. So I think at a fundamental level, we've got to actually really educate the public. I mean, this, of course, is the lane I'm in as an educator and a researcher is thinking about how do we, um, for example, name and make prominent these kinds of obfuscations that then leave people feeling quite powerless that they have to, again, look to this sector and, you know, kind of private, well-capitalized companies to make a public for us rather as we seed the ground. So one of the things, for example, we see is um, how companies like Google, um, by not paying taxes, have starved public institutions for resources, All the, um, schools universities. Um, we don't have the resources that we need to flourish. And that creates the conditions then for things like turning over your IT backbone to Google because it's somehow more economical, right, or efficient. So we seed so much space in so many different domains of public life. And I really appreciated, Meredith, what you were talking about, which is this idea that, um, you know, uh, Somehow these companies are, um, you know, working in the interest of the public. And of course, what we know is that they are doing anything but they're weakening 
the kinds of organizations. So there's lots of places where we all work and live and do things. And I think one of the challenges that we have to face is how are we going to organize ourselves in those spaces and places? Um, you know, there isn't a, a Messiah coming to save us. We're going to save ourselves one school at a time, one institution and organization at a time. We have to organize where we are. Um, you know, I can tell you that, for example, scholars, um, you know, in my domain who do this type of work are the most vulnerable also in universities because while the university has been starved for resources, this creates an opening for companies like Google to and Amazon with its partnership with the National Science Foundation, for example, to cherry pick the researchers that are favorable to their interests, to strengthen engineering schools, to weaken humanities and social sciences. And of course, these are the domains that push back on these kinds of encroachments and um, capture. So I, I think that, you know, um, we're, we are bombarded, you know, in this kind of neoliberal moment to think that we have to solve these things as individuals. Of course, this is one of the things people ask me all the time, Safia, what do I use if I don't use Google products? What should I be doing instead? And it's like, well, you know, you can do other things, but we are not going to purely solve this through consumer choice, picking a different technology, tweaking an algorithm, getting a better, um, you know, so-called AI. We, we are going to do this by saying, what's at stake when automated decision-making systems sort black and brown kids out of opportunities, out of school, out of college, black and brown people out of jobs, out of healthcare, out of services, um, sort essential workers out of vaccine flows like Stanford. Um, you know, those are the places where those moments that are visible to us, we have to get clearer about naming what is happening, pushing back, responding, um, triaging these kinds of things, and then linking them up with other people. To me, this is like the work that we do is getting really clear about what's happening. Um, I don't think there's a grandiose overarching strategy, um, you know, that as soon as Organization X tells us what to do, then we're going to do it. I think we fight for civil rights and human rights everywhere we are in every aspect of our lives. And we link up and we educate other people about how to do that too. Yes, Adrian. Um, I have a couple thoughts on that too, because having worked at the junior high that I worked for, that was a charter school that was co-created by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, and still 30% of their corporate employees are Chan Zuckerberg Initiative employees. And it's really just a front for data mining. And they falsify grades and graduation rates. And I could go on and on and on. It's a mess. My kids were in physical danger. They were in emotional and mental danger. I tried to raise red flags. I've already been sent a slew of cease and desist, but we all know it's not defamation if it's true. So I've yet to be sued. Um, to me, one of the biggest issues that we got to get away from is NDAs. I feel like NDAs are unconstitutional. If it's my story, I have the right to say it. If it's not your secret sauce and your recipe, then you don't have the right to protect it. And what's happening with these corporations, and it's happening at Amazon too, as we're looking at the string of miscarriages that they're causing from coast to coast within their warehouses is that they take everybody as an individual, pay them out $10,000, just the cost of doing business. Then you sign an NDA and nobody sees it. And how do we ever put a stop to anything if we don't ever let anyone tell their story? NDAs seem grossly unconstitutional. 
Um, I know some in public schools make all of their corporate employees sign NDAs. They're still trying to get me to shut up. But I mean, go ahead, come for me because I have no money anyway. The 2020 is taking all that. So I don't know what they're trying to get. Um, and then my other thing in terms of Amazon would be that because AWS runs literally everything, Netflix, ADP, Oracle, we need to start going for those big boys that run on their software. They don't care if I drop them as you know where I buy my goods. They don't care. But they're going to really care if Netflix decides to stop using them as a platform. They're going to really care if Oracle all of a sudden drops them from their platform. So we have to figure out how to really put pressure on those people as well. Because right now they're like these individual, these invisible people flying under the radar and nobody realizes that they're part of the problem. Meredith, I saw a hand from you. Yeah, I I just wanna echo what Safia and what Adrian said. And I think what that kind of raises up for me is one, the sort of issue of corporate secrecy and that we have these public, you know, so-called public goods that are being run by corporations where we don't have access to examine them. We don't, you know, what we know is what their marketing departments and salespeople tell us and what we can observe empirically. And even that is threatened under laws like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So we need whistleblowers in these companies to be sharing this stuff. And we need, you know, we need, you know, legal um, legal intervention that helps us make a map of where these companies are because I think that will that will inform us that there is already an organic coalition of organizers and pushback that is happening because there are very few places where you know there isn't some tech element you know whether it be the charter school whether it be you know wherever else and once we begin to say like you know all of us have these separate campaigns you're pushing against online proctoring you're pushing against facial recognition in schools et cetera, et cetera. look it all tracks back to amazon infrastructure and that's where we have a choke point so i do i do think there is sort of vulnerabilities there that haven't been mapped because a lot of these connections are intentionally kept obscure um and i do think that there is a you know this is the 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 part of me that keeps fighting is optimistic because I do see um, organic coalitions beginning to develop and people, you know, people picking up on these connections so quickly because, you know, if you're harmed, you know where the harm is coming from. I want to, um, Charlton, raise your hand. Yeah, I was just going to quickly uh, echo, um, you know, that, uh, that importance of, uh, linkages and connecting and trying to build varying forms of uh, solidarity in one area in which you know, I think we need to think about that is the area precisely where uh, Alex, you and Timnit and so many others are, that is knowledge producers, workers in corporations that are researchers, that are um, you know folks like us, but are different. And I think for so long, we've sort of had that divide of thinking about folks who are at a corporation versus those of us who are situated at universities. And I think in this current case shows the degree to which we need to build some forms of backstops, really, for the ability to have the kind of academic freedom the freedom to uh, produce and to make known the knowledge and wisdom that we find 
Um, and that's so necessary to what is being produced within and without um, uh, these industries. And so I think that's one place where we lag. And I think we lag because we don't have the capacity, as Sophia mentioned, that when we think about the critical masses of black and brown folks in particular and allies at uh, academic institutions who would provide that, we're weak all the way around. And so I think this um, building needs to happen uh, in many places so that we can do that work of linking more strongly to be able to support each other in uh, the kinds of work that we do that have uh, supreme value. Hello, hello. My thing just messed up. Oh, no. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you, Alex. Okay. Okay. Great. I want to. <laughs> I want to bring in Tanit, actually, because we've talked about this at length, about this separation between academia and industry, right? And and how, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of academic friends, when we come and they're like, well, I don't have to deal with that because I'm in, I'm in, I'm in my academic institution where we're, we're, we're here and we're, our, our hands are clean. But <laughs> so, you know, I want you to speak on that a little bit. Yeah, I don't believe in that dichotomy at all because, um, you know, and, and even when I when I um, got fired, people are like, well, if she was looking for academic freedom, then she should go to academia. But um, so when I look at, for instance, the team um, we were able to build at Google with Meg, it was a battle, but we were able to bring in certain people that we, you know, who, whose um, perspectives that we valued. Imagine doing that in an academic setting, hiring this many <laughs> professors from this many different perspectives or the PhD students. I mean, Stanford, for instance, my, my alma mater has only graduated one black person with a PhD in computer science ever. Right. So um, so whatever academic freedom they have, whatever paradigm that they have for research, it's basically the same as the industry one from what I've seen. It's really not that different. Um, and then, you know, even if they have other kind of departments that are more critical, they don't have to listen to them. They don't have to talk to them. So they don't. They don't respect them. So I have not seen very much difference in terms of academia versus industry. And I also see a lot of movement between academia and industry. So like if you're, um, you know, an academic, you'd have students in industry um, or you might go to industry yourself. You might have part time appointments. You might go back and forth. Your friends are all, you know, in industry or in academia. And then the same people will then go to, I don't know, review grants for the NSF or something like this. And when it comes down to even even when you look at, you know, this work and who gets funded, even from the public institutions. Right. And who are the people getting the large sums of money in order to produce this kind of research? So I, I, I many times definitely. Definitely um, push back on this dichotomy of academia versus industry. I th it's 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 just a, a paradigm problem that that permeates both of them. Absolutely, and I want to I want to pull on another thread here. Uh, this is coming from a question um, Myra had on earlier, and it's pulling on a few other folks. Um, Myra asked, "Do you think some of the obstacles for organizing in tech?" Um, particularly amongst the professional classes, similar to the obstacles in academia, what is the refusal to think of ourselves as workers? Just open that up to everyone. 
Well, you know, let me say as a state employee in California at the University of California that our faculty are not unionized, um, whereas the California State University faculty are. And, um, you know, there's a big difference in terms of the um, alleged benefits right? Um, or a narrative of benefit that's sold to UC faculty, which is about this notion of shared governance, that somehow we are um, uh, active in co-governing the university, right? So that it's like a de facto um, kind of unionization. But of course, what that means is you really don't have, um, those rights are kind of, um, you know, in spirit, let's say, because, you know, we see tremendous threat um, on many of the UC campuses to faculty trying to push back um, against, let's say, administrators or administrative decisions, administrative reorganizations that happen. Um, We see a huge growth um, uh, in the administrative class of worker versus faculty. We see a huge growth of contingent faculty, adjunct faculty, right? Um, Of course, we see a huge decrease in funding and support for graduate students, um, so much so that our UC graduate students were on strike um, before COVID for a year because as Adrian mentioned, you know, you cannot live in the Bay Area or in LA on um, a $12, $15, $19 an hour. So I think that, you know, this is one of the things that is so crucial to, um, whereas, you know, I've seen in my own lifetime um, on a couple of occasions, the CSU, the California State University faculty strike. And that's just what is going to happen. And of course, they also, um, one of the trade-offs is they have, uh, you know, a different kind of oversight mechanism directly by the legislature that also makes their work more difficult. So, you know, this is part of the the importance of not um, abdicating public institutions, right? It's really important. And of course, with all of the austerity measures that university workers face, um, you know, this to me is about weakening our ability to push back. And of course, um, you know, we hear things like with the, you know, incredible shrinking tax contribution from the public to um, higher education. Um, This creates, let's say, narratives for administrators to say, well, the university is funded by corporations or by student tuition dollars, right? Or by um, grants and contracts um, more so than it is by taxpayers. So, maybe we're not as beholden to taxpayers, right? And so this has created a lot of different complex um, issues. And I think we have to, um, you know, Myra, I really appreciate the the question because I think that, um, you know, I will say that for some of us in the university and, you know, maybe I'm telling on myself now, um, you know, I'm, I'm Generation X. I'm like classic on the poster for Gen X. What I'm seeing in my career is that at the point that I'm eligible for retirement, my baby boomer colleagues will finally retire at 90. So you also have this different kind of generational crisis happening where people who are benefiting from the largesse of the university in terms of power and resources, you know, I have colleagues who bought their houses in LA for $90,000 
30 years ago. And trust me, none of us can do that now. So those are the people who also maintain control. And I think um, are out of touch, quite frankly, with some of the other kinds of pressures that new entrants to the university are dealing with. I'm Thank God I just got tenure um, because I'm really talking a lot of shit right now. But I'm just telling you, this is this is the reality of the kinds of things that I think we're facing. And I think they are truly like structural and cultural impediments to organizing. Um, you know, these are not specific to university either. You know, these concentrations of power generationally are also a crisis that we see in the country. We see this in government. Um, you know, and um, the again, people who are entering into uh, the the possibility for making change, policy change, culture change, um, power change, are um, are the least resourced, um, have the least access, um, are dealing with uh, you know bills that their that our colleagues, our senior colleagues, are not dealing with. So it's a it's a, it's a you know, to me, this is where the um, I, I, it feels quite devastating. I think for many, um, uh, you know, people who are again um, Gen Xers, millennials, working in a lot of institutions, and quite frankly, you know, we have nothing to lose but to speak the truth to these situations because it's real tough out here for us. So, you know, if anything, that should be, I guess, a motivating factor um, for us. I saw Meredith's hand, and then uh, I want to say a little something about uh, identity of workers in academia and tech. Yeah, I wanted to speak to this quickly. I think a place to go for sort of more ruminations on this question would be another Haymarket panel that had uh, abolitionist scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore moderating around the termination of tenured professor Garrett Felber, who was effectively fired for naming racism at University of Mississippi um, and doing sort of radical uh, engaged scholarship that went beyond sort of co-opting radical ideas, but actually, you know, having lived politics. So um, I think, you know, it is it's pretty clear that, you know, you upset those with power in those institutions in tech or academia and um you know, power will protect its own. I think one thing that was striking for me as someone, I was a longtime tech worker and I'm pretty new to sort of the academia industry, but what was noticeable as a parallel was the way people's identities are so tied up in this mythology of meritocracy and the way that, you know, these places are structured to at every point reinforce that you are getting an A and you are actually better than other people, that there is sort of a way in which these networks of exploitation sort of draw on this continual need for elevation, whether it be, you know, making sure that you get your paper published in a journal, making sure that you get that letter of recommendation or making sure that your code reviews are good or your perf is good or that you're considered a 10x engineer. These things become really core parts of people's identities and their lives and oftentimes are the things that their parents and them sort of worked to push, you know, and sacrificed to push them to. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the transformation that I've seen when people sort of go from, you know, cathecting to that identity and really, you know, justifying their own superiority based on these metrics to sort of a sense of solidarity is like breaking down that connection to their place in a hierarchy and kind of, you know, 
transposing it with a sort of commitment to other people around them, right? To being like, I'm going to ride for you, you're going to ride for me. And this now becomes sort of a part of my identity is this sort of collective solidarity in these environments, which is part of why it's so dangerous. And I also think part of why organizing is such an emotional and sort of often transformative experience because you're actually breaking down in these professional spaces, at least. And you know, that's what I can speak to. You're breaking down these sort of core um, sort of tenets of who you are and having to re-examine them and, and, and also re-examining what risks you'll take for others. And just a word, I wanted to draw a parallel between some of the organizing efforts that happen between academic organizing and in organizing efforts within the tech industry, because I think you see a lot more solidarities within academic organizing between graduate students. And I think it's especially between graduate students who are in more precarious positions. So I cut my teeth organizing with the Teaching Assistance Association, AFT uh, 3220 in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, always, always have to give TAA a shout out. And the kind of differential that we saw there was between some of the kind of lab-oriented sciences, kind of chemistry and computer science and, and whatnot, and sociology and history, and people who were making the minimum that the university would pay them and uh, we're we're only making you know thirty three percent time, and and uh, you know um, and 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 we're making you know nine hundred dollars a month or whatever. It's what I made when I came to Wisconsin, and so the kind of differential in as a professional identity, I really think you hit the nail on the head there, Meredith, where it's saying like, okay, this is a professional thing. I'm part of the professional class, and then I'm going to do something else. Uh, meanwhile, like those folks who are in fields that that you know are uh, you know being paid these wages, and then they go and find a job market where you know they are continuously in precarious positions, are the folks that are you know finding more of this solidaristic and collective identity. So I think like. We're seeing that kind of parallel for sure, and I just want to—I just want to call that out. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Adrian. Had her hand up. Yeah. So again, like I haven't had a ton of experience um, with the tech organizing, but I know that like my biggest obstacle that I've come across, which was so mind blowing to me, was how many men seem to just want to be like superstars. Like I'm here, here's the show, look at me, roll the cameras and nobody else matters. And I'm sitting here like, Hey, these women are complaining about, you know, sexual harassment back in seventies, eighties levels from, you know, from the 1970s, 1980s, and they can't leave because it's a pandemic. Can we talk about this? Oh, okay, sweetheart. We'll get to your lady issues later. Hey, there's all these women who are having miscarriages left and right. There's no empathy unless it happens to be your girlfriend or your wife. And then you get these lectures about, well, back in the 1930s, you know, we, we just went with it like a bulldozer and, you know, people died. I'm not dying for y'all. I got an eight-year-old to raise. And so this mentality that everybody's supposed to go in with their bodies and kill themselves and also that one dude can be like this glorified, you know, savior of all, 
we all know we're all grown ups. We all know nobody saves anything alone. Nobody rises or falls alone. And yet we're, I'm still running into this problem where like one guy wants to be savior of it all. And if you come in with any other idea or any other perspective, they don't want to hear it and they really want you to kick rocks. And so I feel like the other issue is that then when you bring that up, the first thing they say is, oh, don't ruffle feathers, don't ruffle feathers. The feathers have been ruffled. I'm just trying to smooth them back out. And so there's this real problem where it's like when women try and say, hey, there's a problem, there's a problem. It's like, oh, princess, you're you're making waves. And it's just a bunch of bullshit to me. And I don't know if it's because I'm new and I'm not, you know, seasoned in being an organizer. So I don't know the etiquette, but like, I'm good. I don't want any part of that BS kissing butt, trying to be friends with everybody, kumbaya crap. Then we're either going to get it done or we're not. But I'm not going to uplift abusers so that we can say that this movement moves forward. Any movement that puts abusers at the top as a messiah is not a movement I want to be a part of. And I think that's a big problem right now in terms of like, how do we move things forward to have legitimacy and validity and make people want to follow us? Nobody's going to want to follow us if half the people at the top are known abusers. And we really have to be willing to look at that and then be willing to follow people that maybe don't come in the package that we expected them to come in because it's not going to happen. Nobody ever comes the way you expect them to come. But like, I don't care what you look like. You can come to me purple with red hair. Can you fix it and put some more cash in my pocket? That's what I'm looking for. And so we have to like evaluate, like, what do we want from life? And then how can we come together? Because we're not all going to get along. Some are going to be Republicans. Some are going to be Democrats. Not everybody's going to see eye to eye. But what's our ultimate goal? Because at the end of the day, none of this is really about race. It's all about money. And race is this tool that the elite and the political class have wielded brilliantly to make us all mad at each other and ignore the fact that they're stealing from all of us. So like that to me is the biggest problem and the biggest like pitfall that I feel like I keep running into is every time I think I find a group or like a a place where people are organizing and it's going to go somewhere with labor. It's like, oh no, you're a girl. So sit over there and be a decoration while the men handle this. And I can't, like, it just, I have too many opinions. It just doesn't work for me. (laughs) I wanted to jump in because everything you just said, I mean, it's, so uh, when when you're a black woman, you obviously get it from all the men, whether it's black men or others. And for you to say something and go against a black man who is an abuser in this setting, while you're also dealing with all of the you know other things from all the white men, all the white women, whatever, it's 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 a huge deal and exactly and then and then even people in your own community want to silence you because oh it doesn't look good but i totally agree with you there are many people who who take advantage of i don't know what it is about the organizing space or the activist space or whatever or if it's research i don't know what it is but it, it, it does have a tendency of drawing a certain kind of, I think, um, personality that can fool people into thinking that they're doing something, but they're not really and they're abusers and they can get away with it for a much longer time. And um, a lot of times I find that sometimes when we're in these spaces, um, people talk a lot about, you know, 
let's say maybe capitalism or other things, but the sexism, it doesn't matter if you're in a Marxist environment or if you're in an NGO or you're in a nonprofit or whatever, there are certain things that are happening and it doesn't go away because, because we are, you know, addressing other issues. This is a huge thing. And I've, I've talked to even, you know, April, who got fired from Google, if you and Erica, who, who were pushed out of um, uh, Pinterest, right? And this is this is the thing we deal with. And I, I dealt with that a lot at Google um, as well. And even with the organization that we found, we, we co-founded with my uh, colleague, Amredit. And w- like you said, how we have to focus on the goal because... Um, you know, there's all there's going to be all sorts of personalities and egos you have to manage. And sometimes you have to let things go because, you know, you, you want to go to a bigger goal. But there's just certain things we don't we cannot let go. And that's the abusive behavior that you're talking about. And this happens a lot. Thank you. Thank you for speaking on that, Adrian and Tanit. Um, we have one more minute. Do we have do we have time? Yeah. Can we keep this going for like another hour? <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, okay. So why don't we, why don't we try to wrap up? There's been a few questions in the chat, uh, about, uh, uh, um, um, a few things. One question I want to touch on is uh, um, those beginning in tech, what can they do um, about about unionizing and organizing? Another that I really want to touch on, and a few people have brought up, uh, is about a lot of the U.S. centricity of this chat. So uh, Julian as major tech companies are multinational corporations employing outsourced workers all over the world, especially in the global South. How can we make this a global worker movement? Um, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna drop those as as some maybe some concluding concluding questions. I say we need the port workers. We need the port workers to stop unloading ships because they can stop unloading ships for all types of companies. So the question is, how can we make it a global um, issue, right? Not not necessarily U.S. centric. Is that is that I, I'm, is that the so? Yeah, these companies are international companies, and there are many times where I feel like we speak on behalf of people who are not in the U.S. or elsewhere, right? And it's like, I think it's like everything else. It's important to pass the mic and under and know that we don't know. And we, we don't have to know, right? I mean, everybody knows their own context very, very well. And for me, this was similar, even at Google, right? Um, when we were talking about organizing, I know my context within Google, within the research organization as a researcher, I, I understand my own issues, my own problems. I don't understand some issues that some other people are dealing with in a different context. So we can have some sort of federation where each person is empowered to, you have to listen to the different people from the, you know, from the different parts of the organization, because they're the only people who have, who, who know what their issues are. And this is, it's the same thing in terms of, you know, 
let's say, in a global south. So, for instance, you know, I can talk about parts of the African continent, like where I'm from, or um, but not even, it's a huge continent. Um, I, I even see, like, you know, even members of diaspora sort of criticizing how some people approach organizing there, right? Like, if, but if you go there and you look at, you know, like, even when I try to do anything in Ethiopia, any little thing, like even have, have a free, you know, one month coding class for students, right? The bureaucracy you have to go through to even just do that, <laughs> anyone who doesn't just give up and leave, I have a lot of respect for, right? So for if, I, if I'm going to go there and lecture them and say, hey, you shouldn't want to work at Google, you shouldn't want to do this, that's, that's still very, I think that's, um, what's the word? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, one second. <laughs> one second. Hey. Um, patronizing patronizing that's the word I was looking for sorry the my dogs were um, yelling at each other so it, it's patronizing right so it's very important to understand that there's many things we don't know and we have to pass the mic and there's a lot of initiatives there and I think the biggest thing we can do is like amplify those voices and those initiatives yeah, I just want to support. I mean, I think that organizing happens locally, and I think people build coalitions around issues. Now, this is like a fundamental dimension of organizing across a lot of issues, and we find solidarities issue by issue. So it's really important that those you know that we do the work where we are again, rather than waiting for someone out there to fix it somewhere else. We are going to fix it right where we are in the lanes where we in the lanes that we occupy and um and and build those relationships and i think of course the storytelling work is so important because that is also what links up our experiences. It humanizes what we're talking about. You know, I remember when I, 10 years ago, when I started my graduate work and I was talking about that algorithms could discriminate and that they actually could uphold like oppressive systems, people would say that's just impossible. It's no, there's no way. I mean, they would argue with me and say it that, um, you know, code is just math and math can't be racist. And here, I think fast forward 10 years, we have, you know, to me, we have um, so many people who have the receipts on how it works, Alex, um, right? So, you know, I think it's really important that we hold on to the, the things we know, tell those stories, keep linking them up with each other, humanize these conversations, resist the capture you know, we have here, we all are tied together around this kind of conceptually, this idea of, you know, what happened to meet with your experience of talking about AI and ethics or the lack of ethics, the lack of morality, the immorality of the things that you saw happening, the discrimination. Um, th those words now have been captured. I mean, that Google dared to open up a consulting division on AI and ethics, you know, I got a good laugh out of that one. So, you know, we have to always stay smart, um, uh, articulate what is happening, be prepared that our critique will be captured and reframed and redeployed in service of capital and service of these companies, um, weaponized against us, the very uh, thinkers who brought our evidence 
from our lived experience to the table. They will invalidate our lived experience. They will invalidate what we see with our eyes. They'll tell us these are lion eyes. So, you know, it's very important that we um, not give up. And I think, you know, I have to say that just as a final thought for me, um, it brings me an incredible amount of joy to look at each of you on this screen and to get to work with you and connect with you because, um, you know, our struggle is for deepening the humanity of our families, our kids, creating a future, creating a sense of possibility for ourselves. Um, you know, keeping these ideas at the forefront of what we're trading off when these companies encroach is really important. Everyone, Adrian, I totally relate to what you're saying. You know, I have a nine-year-old. It's like we can all relate to what it means to um, to be made vulnerable and feel um like we we don't have a sense of future. And those stories are really important and those stories are increasing. We know that the global um, wealth inequality is increasing every year. It's more unequal than it was the year before. Um, a lot is at stake. And, you know, uh, the consolidation of power among the 1% is not sustainable. The bottom will fall out of that. So we have to, while we're thinking about resisting these encroachments, we have to also be able to articulate what we want, the kind of communities we want, the kind of world we want, the kind of environments we want. We have to speak the the possible, speak what we want, speak, speak it in joyful, meaningful, loving ways while we also do the resisting work of the encroachment. And so I, um, I just want to say that I feel energized with all of you because I think if we're doing this work together, like how can we be defeated? Um, us and all our friends, boy, you know, we're a mighty team. Amazing. I feel like that's a good place to end. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adrian, to me, Charles and Meredith, Sophia. Thank you, Haymarket Books, uh, for letting us have this conversation. Um, so much love to Haymarket. Um, uh, I'm going to do the YouTube thing and say, please subscribe to their channel. <laughs> uh, I've never gotten to say that before. So, um, oh, Liam says, please subscribe. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.